Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. A wise man once told me that there is no good news without the bad news. And uh, this uh, Friday, this past Friday, as a community of faith, we gathered and we contemplated the, the, just the horror and the really mystery and wonder of the cross. And, and because he gave it all, this Sunday we get to celebrate a very um, unique and wonderful and mysterious and miraculous reality that Christ has risen. Help me out. He's risen indeed. Amen. Amen. And if you're joining us for the first time, why put a chapel? This is not your home, and perhaps you got dragged here by someone, and uh, you know maybe it's like this is the thing that you do on Easter, right? You show up on Christmas and Easter. We're really glad you're here, right? Know that we're, we're stoked that you're here. We're thrilled that you would honor us with your time and celebrate and worship with us. But here's what you need to know about why put a chapel about us as a community of faith and believers. We actually really do believe that he physically, bodily rose from the dead. We really do believe that Jesus was dead, 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 in a grave for two, three days, and then he rose again. We believe that with all our hearts. We believe that he really, really rose. He didn't just rise uh, mystically or ethereally or metaphorically and his spirit is with us. No, 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 no. We actually believe he was dead and now he lives. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now let me tell you why we believe that. 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Matthew. He, he lived in the days of Jesus. He walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. He was a tax collector. He was kind of like the, the hated IRS, right? I mean, he was the guy no one liked. And he knew Jesus, and Jesus changed his life dramatically. And he was there. He witnessed um, Jesus' arrest and ultimately his crucifixion. But more importantly, he witnessed with his very own eyes Jesus raised from the grave, bodily, physically raised from the grave. And Matthew wrote about it, and, and we have a record of that eyewitness account. But Matthew was not the only one. There was also another guy. His name was John. John knew Jesus when he was still um, maybe a, a late teenager, 18, 19 years old. And he walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus. He knew Jesus as a real living person. And John witnessed those events of Jesus' crucifixion. He was one of the few that actually remained and stayed and watched the Romans nail him to a cross. And it broke his heart. All his aspirations, all his dreams, all his hopes in that one terrible night were shattered. But that terrible night turned into a marvelous, mysterious, wonderful night because three days later he rose from the dead. And John was the first to go to the empty tomb. And the tomb was empty. And then he saw him. He saw him, the risen Jesus. He ate with him. He spoke with him. Not, not a hallucination, but the real Jesus. And John wrote an account, and we have that account, with that eyewitness account. But we don't only have the account, eyewitness account of Matthew, of John. We also have the account of Peter. Peter was a burly fisherman, salt-of-the-earth type of guy, blue-collar guy, boots and nails. That's, that's who Peter was. He wasn't some ethereal, goony gugar kind of mystical guy. He was just a regular salt-of-the-earth, blue-collar laborer. Peter knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, lived with Jesus. And when Jesus was arrested, Peter was like, I don't want any part of that because I'm going to be next. And so Peter took off, went running, scurrying. And Jesus was crucified. And three days later, just as Jesus had predicted, he rose from the grave. And Peter, 
this burly fisherman. He saw the living Christ. And so his friend Mark gives us Peter's eyewitness account. So we have the testimony, the eyewitness accounts of, of Mark, written by Peter, or Peter telling Mark, Mark telling Peter's story. We have the eyewitness account of Matthew, of John. We have the eyewitness account of Luke. All right, Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was a physical, a doctor, a physician. He knew what dead people looked like, I'm assuming, as a doctor. He would know. And Luke spent much of his life, hours, years of his life, collecting evidence and eyewitness accounts of those who had physically seen the risen Jesus. And Luke compiled that evidence for us. And we have that account. And then, of course, there was James. Do you guys remember who James was? Anyone? Someone in the first row. Good job. The rest of you, I don't know why. You went at Bible school. All right. (laughs) James. James was Jesus' brother. Now, Now think about this. James doesn't show up in the story until after the resurrection. Now think about your siblings, if you have brothers and sisters. What would it take to convince your siblings that you were the son of God? You'd have to rise from the dead, right? Your siblings who saw you going through puberty and all the stuff that you going through as a kid, as a child, as a young adult. What would it take? You'd have to rise from the dead. And James shows up in the story after the resurrection. Why? Because he saw his brother, the guy he grew up with, the guy probably taught how to ride a tricycle or whatever they had back then. He saw the risen Jesus, and he believed, and he gives us an account. And then, of course, there's Paul, Paul the apostle, the guy who wrote most of our New Testament. In those early days, Paul hated the Christians. Those early followers, he hated them. He thought they were nothing but a superstitious bunch of of fringe people who, who were trying to undermine the, the, under, the pinnings and the teachings of Judaism. And so he spent years persecuting them, going after them, trying to squash that early religion out until he too met the risen Jesus. And it changed everything. It changed absolutely everything. So we have these witnesses. This is why we believe, because we have these eyewitnesses accounts. Matthew, John, Peter, James, Paul. And they tell us not what Jesus taught. And they believed not because Jesus taught these things, but because of what they saw, what they experienced. They saw the resurrected Christ, and it changed everything for them. Now, now why is this important? Now, I, I don't know where all of you are. I know some of you, some of you are my friends, and you've been part of Wipena Chapel for a while. Some of you are here because, you know, like I said earlier, maybe someone, grandma told you if you came, she would feed you, right? I was actually joking about that in first service, and then someone came up to me and said, that's exactly how I got my family here. We promised them lunch, right? And some of you might be here, and maybe this is the time that you come to church, and, and we're really excited that you're here. And, uh, so I don't know where you are, but here's what I, what I know many, many, many of us um, believe and think when it comes to Jesus. You know, even if you're not a Christian, and even if you're not a church person, most of us, most of us in our culture, in fact, just about in every culture in the world, we acknowledge Jesus, and we actually like Jesus. We might have a few choice things to say about his followers, but Jesus, he's okay, right? He's a good guy. We like the things that Jesus taught. I mean, let's face it, Jesus taught some pretty cool things. I mean, he, he, he was the guy who said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? The golden rule, we all know that one. That was Jesus. 
We like that. That was good. Jesus said some really great things. The way he taught, the way he lived, it was beautiful. He said things like, blessed are um, the, 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 those who mourn because they'll be comforted. He promised us hope. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And and we take these teachings of Jesus, and we love the teachings of Jesus because they're so true, and they resonate with our heart. They resonate with our soul uh, because he loved the underdog, and he loved the the marginalized and the disenfranchised. And his teachings are timeless, and, and when we apply those teachings and principles to our lives, we know they work. And so we like Jesus. We like his teachings. But let's face it, the resurrection, that, that's a little strange, right? And that's hard to wrap your head around. That's hard to believe. So there's much about Jesus that we love, um, much about Jesus, the way he taught and the way he lived that was beautiful and admirable and inspiration, and we want to cling to those things. But the resurrection, that's just a little strange. That's hard to believe. So it's understandable that many of us will want to separate the teaching of Jesus, the ethic of Jesus, the morality of Jesus from this weird thing, the resurrection, right? We, we want to take the morality of Jesus, but, but really, do we have to attach the resurrection to it? Is that necessary? So it's understandable that we want to raise up the teaching of Jesus, but keep Jesus in the tomb. And we want to raise up the, the morality and the ethic of Jesus, but leave him buried in a grave. And the reality is that every major religion, um, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, they all acknowledge the historic Jesus. They all affirm Jesus' teaching. And I suspect even the most skeptical amongst us here, we would at least acknowledge that Jesus was a good guy. He lived a beautiful life, an admirable life, an inspiring life. Um, And so it's it's not difficult to see why so oftentimes we want to separate Jesus and his teaching and his ethic from the reality of the resurrection. But here's the problem with that. Everything that you know about Jesus, everything that you know about Jesus' life, everything that you know about Jesus' teaching came from this group of guys that firmly believed that Jesus bodily, physically rose from the dead. You see, for these New Testament writers, Matthew, John, Peter, Paul, James, and the others, The resurrection wasn't something that was just peripheral. It wasn't a footnote to their teaching. It wasn't an appendix at the back of the book. No, the resurrection was central. It was the foundation upon which everything that they taught stood. And without the resurrection, the whole thing came crumbling down. So the resurrection was absolutely central to everything that they talked and talked about. But here's what so many of us believe, and, and really, many of us probably wouldn't say this out loud, because if we did, we'd realize how just kind of silly it sounds. But here's what many of us believe. Many of you believe this, perhaps. We, we believe that this group of guys, the, these, these guys, Matthew, Mark, John, these, these early followers of Jesus Christ, they were so inspired by the teaching of Jesus, so encouraged by the life that he lived, that when he died, they were like, you know what, we can't let this thing die with Jesus. We want to perpetuate the truth of Jesus, the life he had, the inspiration of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to come up with this big, fat lie. We're going to tell everyone that he rose from the dead. And so to perpetuate the truth of Jesus, we're going to come up with a lie. And many of us believe that. That's what happened. That's what we have to believe if we separate the teaching of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus. But we go beyond that. 
Not only did they come up with the lie to perpetuate the truth of Jesus, but they were actually also willing to die for that lie. They would die to protect a lie to protect the truth. It doesn't make sense, does it? But you know what? I get it. The resurrection is so hard to wrap your head around that you would actually believe that rather than believe that he really rose from the dead. And so we try to separate the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, because we understand it resonates with us. He taught such beautiful things. He lived such a beautiful life. And so we want to separate that from the resurrection. And again, I'll grant it, the resurrection is a hard thing to believe. It's a hard thing to wrap your head around. I've seen a few dead people in my life, and when you're dead, you're dead. And to think that someone who was once dead now comes alive, that's, that, that's, that's, that's a mind blower. I get that. And so it's easier for us to believe that these men would come up with a lie and then die for a lie to perpetuate the truth of who Jesus was. But here's the thing. If there was no resurrection, then everything that you hold fast to about Christianity and the ethic of Christianity, even if you're not a Christian, even if you just kind of, you know, like you're an American cultural Christian, but, but the ethic of Christianity, things like grace and mercy and forgiveness, all those things that are, that are virtuous and good and beautiful about the Christian ethic, you might as well throw all of that out of the window. You might as well throw all of that out of the window. If you've been living a good life, believing that, that, that you, know, you need to be kind to your neighbor and to be generous and to serve people because you believe somehow God is taking notice of all of the stuff that's going on here and that somehow um, he's actually going to reward you for, for living a good life rather than just being selfish and hedonistic in, in your lifestyle, guess what? You've been good for nothing. That's right. You're a good for nothing. You are. You know, if you've been clinging to a marriage and struggling in a difficult marriage because you know it's just the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do, it's what Jesus would have you do, it's for nothing. Forget it. Give it up. You guys might as well have gone to the beach today. It's a beautiful day. You might as well have gone to the beach. You might as well have, have kept that tea time. See, and some of you are elbowing your wife right now and going like, see, I told you, I could have been playing golf. You might as well throw everything that you've ever believed or known or thought to be good and true and pure and virtuous about Christianity, throw it out the window if the resurrection is not true. Forget about everything that you've ever known about Christianity because Christianity stands and falls on this one reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And everything that we know about Jesus, his life, his teaching came to us from a group of men who firmly believed that Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead. So if we want to remove the reality of the resurrection from the teaching of Jesus Christ, everything floats away. There is no foundation. And here's the deal. This notion of trying to separate the teaching of Jesus from the resurrection, the reality of his resurrection, is not new. This is something that's been around for a long time. In fact, Paul, who was the apostle who wrote much of our New Testament, 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he wrote a letter to a church in Corinth. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, see, see, that's the problem, because it was 20 years after they actually happened. How could we believe? Some of you who are 50 years and older, you remember your 30s, don't you? 
Some of you wish you could forget your 30s. I, I know, I do. Um, so, so really, think about it. 20 years is not that long. How many of you remember the lyrics to Thriller? Right? Achy, breaky heart? Yeah, you remember those. Guess how long ago those were written? Over 20 years ago. So 20 years is not a long time. 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection, Paul writes a letter to a church in Corinth, a gathering of people much like us who had the same kind of sensibilities that we do. These were sophisticated people. They were like, really, we love Jesus. We love his teachings. We love the moral principles that, that he's espounding. But really, the resurrection, do we have to hold on to that? And so this is what Paul writes then. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, picking up verse 12, he says this, But... If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now follow his thinking. He says here, he says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and your faith as well. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In other words, what I'm doing here, useless. What we're doing here, gathering, useless. Like I said, you might as well have gone to the beach. You might as well have gone and played golf or whatever it is that you do on a day like today because this is a waste of time. And that hope that you've been clinging to, the peace that you've been seeking through faith in Jesus Christ, he says, throw it out. It's useless. It's useless. If there is no resurrection, all of this is useless. My preaching as well as your faith. He'll go on in verse 15 and say that. More than that, we, now he's speaking about Matthew and John and Peter and all the other apostle, uh, apostles. He's saying that we then be found as false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. What he's saying here, he says, we've been lying to you and the worst kind of lies. Not just lying about the deeds of men, but we've been lying about God. We've been false witnesses about God. And so you might as well take everything that we've ever said and throw it in the trash because we're liars. And some of you are like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember, wasn't Paul the guy that, that wrote that cool thing about love? We used it at our wedding, remember? Love is patient, love is kind. Can't we at least keep that? Paul's like, no, get rid of that. Throw that out. That is useless. Well, what about, what about, what about God is love, right? We love that one. God is love. Can we, can we hold on to that one? And Paul would say, no, no, no. That was John. That was the guy who was the first at the empty tomb. He preached about the resurrection. And if he lied about that, he's lied about everything. God isn't love. We don't know who God is. Throw that out. Well, what, wait, 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 wait. What, what about, for God so loved the world that he gave? We love that one. Paul would say, no, that was John too. Get rid of that. Get rid of that. Don't try to take anything inspirational. Don't try to take anything uplifting. Don't try to gain any hope about life and uh, this life now and the life to come from the teachings that we've given you. Throw it all away. Because without the resurrection, none of it, none of it makes any sense. None of it is true. If we've lied about this, we've lied about everything. So he goes on in, in verse 17. He says this. But he, God speaking of God, did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But whoa, whoa, slow down there, Pastor. God is forgiving, isn't he? Well, where did you hear that? 
But, but, but wait, God is good. God is merciful. God is kind. How do you know? Who told you that? The same guys who told you Jesus rose from the dead. You see, all these things that inspire us about the Christian faith, all these tenets of, of justice and mercy and faithfulness and goodness and forgiveness, all of those are Christian virtues that came from the same pen of these men who declared emphatically that Jesus rose bodily, physically, from the dead. All of it was based on the reality of this one simple truth, that he is risen. He's risen. And again, you, you might say to me, well, Pastor Sean, well, well, I believe, and fill in the blank, well, well, I believe. And here's what I'd say to you about that. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe, because what you believe does not determine reality. You guys know that, right? For instance, you're driving up to church, you're driving up Haleakala, and you're like, you're late, so hey, you put your foot to the metal, you're going 80 miles an hour, and you get pulled over by one of Maui's finest. And you say, well, listen, officer, just wait, wait a minute. I believe, I believe that the speed limit is ridiculous. It's way too slow. Amen. <laughs> she actually said that to, a pass, to an officer once. And you would go like, well, well officer, I believe, I, I believe that, that this car was designed to, to, to work optimally at 90 miles an hour. And you know what he'll say to you? Here's your ticket. Have a good day. Because what you believe does not determine reality. You understand that. What we believe does not determine reality. Our belief has to be rooted and based in reality. And so Paul will go on in verse 18 and he'll say this. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. That little phrase, fallen asleep, was a, was a way the, the Christians believed death, about death. They didn't believe we actually physically died because to, to be away from the body was to be alive with Christ. So they said, so a Christian would be asleep, but he would say, well, well, but if there's no resurrection, then those that have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Now, what does it mean to, to be lost? What happens when, when you can't find your keys? They're lost, right? So, so it means we, we just don't know where they are. We, we have no way of knowing where they are. Now, I don't mean to be insensitive here, but, you know, if you buried someone recently, perhaps your tutu or, you know, someone that you loved or, or were close to, and, and, and the pastor stood up there and said, you know what, take hope, you know, take heart, because they're in a better place. You know, take hope, because you'll see them again. What he's saying here is that forget about that. They're lost. You have no idea where they are. Your whole concept of what you understand, if you live in the Western Hemisphere, has been formed, shaped, molded by the teachings of the New Testament. So what you believe about heaven, about life, and the afterlife have all been shaped and formed by these teachings. I mean, think about it. There are better options, right? I mean, you could be like a Viking. I mean, I think a Viking way of dying, if you're a guy, is pretty cool. You know, when you die in battle... The Valkyries, these virgin angels, come and take you away, and you go to this Valhalla, and there you get to fight, all right, all day long, battle against your neighbor. And when you're killed, you get resurrected the next day, and you get to feast and drink all day long, and then do it again. It's awesome. And the only thing is, you just got to die on your feet, you know, with your sword in your hand and no wounds in your back, and you're in. That seems like a better option, because forget about the Christian one, right? You might as well throw that out. 
he says, for those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. He goes on verse 18, he says, if for only in this life that we have hope in Christ, we are all people the most pitied. The most pitied. Paul would say to you, Christian, you've been showing up and serving and giving generosity generously. Pity you. Pity you. You know, for those of you who have been struggling in a difficult relationship, trying to work it out, giving yourself sacrificially to it, he would say, pity you. Pity you. If for this life all is all that we have to hope for, pity us. We are the most pitied people out there. And basically what he's saying, you might as well just eat and drink and be merry. Because tomorrow you die. End of story. That's it. Game over. But, but, he has risen. He has risen. And friends, that changes everything. It changes everything. And so as Paul began this, this letter in, in chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 15, he says this. For what I received, I've passed on to you as first importance. The most important things are these right here. He says, for Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. He was raised on the third day. And here, then he says, here's why we know this to be true. He says, and that he was seen. By Cephas. Cephas was another name for Peter. That word seen, in the original manuscripts, in the Greek language that was written, it's the word atomomia. It's from whence we get the, the word optometry. And it literally means to be seen with eyes wide open. What he's saying here, Peter saw him with his eyes wide open. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't an apparition. His eyes were wide open and he saw the risen Christ. He then goes on to say, he says, and they were seen by the 12, which were the other 12 apostles. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And this is important to understand because it wasn't like they had a group hallucination, all right? They weren't at Burning Man having a little party. Some of you younger ones are laughing because you know what that is. And others are going like, what is he talking about? Speak to me afterwards, I'll explain that. But that's the point. They were all there at the same time. And then look what he says. And though some of them have fallen asleep, others, some of them have passed away, others are still living. In fact, what he's saying, he says, I get it. I know this is hard to believe. But I don't want you just to take my word for it. I saw him, eyes wide open. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't an apparition. He was real. But I wasn't the only one. Peter saw him, and then the 12, and then there were 500 others who saw him. And if you don't believe me, some of them are still alive. 20 years after the fact, some of them are still alive. Go speak to them. They saw him. They were there with eyes wide open. They saw him. And he concludes this thought, and he says, And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. I think what he's saying to us is, yes, I get it. I know it's hard to believe. But I saw him. I saw him. With my eyes wide open, I saw him. And he appeared to Peter and John. And remember Thomas? Thomas, one of the apostles? He was like you. He, he didn't believe. And so he said, I, I want to touch his, his wounds. I want to put my hands in his wounds. I want to see him. I want to feel him. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe. And Thomas saw him. And you know what Thomas did? He fell to his knees. And he said, my Lord and my God. 
Paul is saying, I, I get it. I know this is hard to understand. It's hard to, to wrap our, our heads around. But it's real. It happened. We saw him. He was dead. And then he was alive. And it changed everything. And what that means is that none of this is in vain. None of this is that vain. Everything that he said about life, about death, about God, and about the life after death, it's real. It's true. We're going with the guy who rose from the dead. It really happened. That it means all of your worship, all of your sacrifice, all of your generosity, all of your discipline, it's not in vain. Why? Because he rose from the dead. He's risen. You see, this is what we need to understand here. This is why we cannot separate the teaching of Jesus from the reality of the resurrection. Because for these early New Testament writers who told us everything that we know about Jesus, everything that we know about Jesus' teaching and his life, they believed that this was central. It wasn't peripheral. It wasn't a footnote. It wasn't an appendix at the back of the book. This was so central to everything that they taught. They said, if you remove the resurrection, then you might as well just throw it all away. So we cannot dissociate the, 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 the resurrection of Jesus Christ from his teaching. Because if there is no resurrection, then everything that you hold true to about the Christian faith, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, mercy, grace, justice, forgiveness, all of those are New Testament values. And if you remove the resurrection... These early writers would say you might as well just throw the whole lot away because we are false witnesses. We have lied to you about God. The reality of the resurrection changes everything. And really, there's only one issue. And like I said, I, I don't know where you guys all are at. And we've had hundreds of people come through here this morning. And this has been my same message to them. Um, you might have all kinds of questions about Christianity. You might have all kinds of issues that you have with Christianity. You know, what about the dinosaurs and why is there evil in the world? And all these questions that have prevented you from really embracing the message of the gospel. But really, there's only one issue that you need to resolve. There's really only one issue and one question that is central to all of this. And this question is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if this is true, then everything changes. If this is true, it means that your sins really can be forgiven. If this is true, it means that you really can know God and you really can have a relationship with your Creator. If this is true, it means that everything that Jesus taught about life, about God, about God and His kingdom and the life to come is true. It changes everything. See, Christianity and everything that we know about it begins and ends with the resurrection. And again, I don't know where this lands for you. You know, you might be here and you might be the relativist. You might, might live with that, that, that kind of confusing mentality that what's good for you is not good for me and your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And maybe that's who you are. You know, may, maybe you're the religious person who believes that somehow you can, you can balance the scales. You know, you can do enough good things in this life that when God looks at your life, you'll say, okay, you're in. 
I don't know where you are. Maybe you're the religious person. Maybe you're the rationalist. Maybe for you, unless it makes sense, unless you can wrap your head around it, unless you can, can think it through logically and reasonably, you're just not going to believe it. Or maybe you're a person who's resentful and you're just opposed to the gospel because you've been hurt. Life's hurt you. Perhaps even the church has hurt you. And so you might be here, you might be a rationalist, you might be a relativist, you might be religious, you, you might be resentful. But my hope and my prayer this Resurrection Sunday is that in this moment, by the power of God's Spirit, you'll be a realist. You will recognize the veracity of this truth. That these men believe that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead. And they didn't come up with a lie to perpetuate a truth, but they were willing to die for this one singular truth. That Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And at some point in your life, friends, you're going to have to be confronted with this reality. Perhaps today, but sooner, I hope, than later. That there is a risen Lord who has gone to extreme length to rescue you and save you from your rebellion and your wickedness. And through his death and burial, he paid a price that you could never pay to make a way for you to come into relationship with your creator. And it's real. It's not a fairy tale. It's not the Easter bunny. It's the reality of a God who loves us so incredibly that he gave everything that he had to pursue you and to rescue you. And there is an invitation on the table this morning. And some of you have responded, and you're living a life in the spirit of the living God, pursuing a knowledge and relationship with him, and others of you have been resisting it. And I want to give you an opportunity right now to respond. So if you would, just bow your heads with me, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. And as I pray, our worship team will prepare to come close us out. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for these eyewitness accounts of the reality of your resurrection because that reality, Lord, changes everything. It means everything you, Jesus, taught us about life. You taught us about the kingdom of God and the life to come, Father, is true. And Lord, I know that my words cannot convince anyone of the reality of who you are. This is a, a sovereign work of your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would come and bring revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. And you would bring revelation of this one singular truth that he is risen, that he is alive. And that he is beckoning a people to come after him, to follow him. And perhaps you're here today and you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus. But there's no coincidence that you hear. This is not a singular event. God has been pursuing you for perhaps years, has been beckoning you, drawing you to come and speak to him, to come and be with him, to be in relationship with him. And Jesus has provided the means. He has declared, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
and that no one comes to the Father except through me. And he has provided the means through which we can have relationship with God. And the scripture says, if that you would repent, you would turn from your own ways, turn from your sinfulness and come to God, that he is faithful and just and he will forgive you, cleanse you of all unrighteousness and restore you into the very image in which you were created, the image of God. And you have a right to call yourself a child of God. And perhaps there's some of you who have never made that decision. So I want to give you an opportunity right now, with every head bowed, I would ask you just to raise your hand and make eye contact with me so that I can pray for you. If you're ready to, to enter into a life with Christ, to make that exchange of your sin for His life, just in a moment of courage, and it requires faith, and I get that. Faith is a hope and an evidence of things unseen. And sometimes it's stepping into that mystery and stepping into that wonder. If that's you, I'd just ask you to raise your hand right now. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. Hands everywhere. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. So, Heavenly Father, I just want to seal this work of your Spirit right now, Lord, as you've brought a revelation of your truth to human hearts, something that only you can do. I pray now that you would seal this work by the power of your Spirit. These that have risen their hand, Father, I pray right now for an infilling of your Holy Spirit that you continue to bring them a revelation of your truth. You do that miraculous promise that you promised us so long ago that you would take our hearts of flesh, our hearts of stone and replace them with a heart of flesh. And upon that heart, Lord, that you would write your law so that no man would have to teach them, that you yourself, Lord, would guide them by your Spirit and with your eyes. And lead them into life and life everlasting. And I pray you do this, Lord, for the glory of your name and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.